Um, you know, and this is, you know, you know, we see this in the news, right? We see a lot of shit in the news about Trudeau hugging babies. Uh, for the past two years, the front page of major newspapers is all about Trudeau hugging, particularly refugee babies, I should say, how he's at the airport welcoming refugees, um, giving people Canadian flags, um, and proca you know, proclaiming refugees welcome, right? Saying, we welcome refugees. But what isn't as reported on, um, and of course, you know, this is because it's part of the Trudeau brand, is a number of things. One is, is that every single Syrian refugee in Ottawa, for example, is currently using the food bank, right? So what are the limitations of this supposed welcome, right? How, what are the ways in which poverty and neoliberalism is being inscribed onto the lives of refugees that we're supposedly welcoming? Uh, the second is also this starker reality of what's been happening this summer, particularly in Quebec, which is that in one month alone, the RCMP intercepted, intercepted is a really legally kind word of not saying detained and arrested. Um, but the RCMP have basically detained and arrested 3,000 people, 3,000 refugees, primarily of Haitian descent, who are coming across the U.S.-Canada border in one month alone, in July. 3,000 were detained and arrested. Um, and thousands of them are still living in military tents near the U.S.-Canada border. And what the Canadian media didn't report on, if they reported on this at all, is that the reporting was focused on how Donald Trump had removed temporary protected status for Haitian refugees. Did people hear about this? Donald Trump removing TPS status? What wasn't reported on was that actually Justin Trudeau had removed a moratorium on deportations to Haiti a whole year prior than Donald Trump had. And in all of the administrative... Um, paperwork that you go back and you look at Donald Trump assessing the situation of TPS, he points to Trudeau lifting the moratorium on Haitian refugees as making it possible for the United States to do the same, right? Saying that if Canada can do this and perfect its deportation of, of Haitian refugees, then we can do it too. But most media reporting uh, in Canada reported as if... Hi everyone, uh, this is Nashua and it's kind of cold here today, but uh, we're still going. And this week's episode of Hibipti Please, I am so honored to uh, be joined by Harsha Walia, who is somebody I read initially in undergrad and have followed on the internet since and is just doing such amazing work and has influenced so many people in my life beyond just the GTA and Canadian kind of context of politics. A lot of people I know have read Border Imperialism or reference it, but um, I'm going to let Harsha introduce herself to the audience today and uh, also a bit about what it's like today right now in Vancouver, where I believe she is right now. Hi, Harsha. How are you? Hi. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's lovely to meet you and be here. Yeah, my name is Harsha. I'm here on unceded Coast Salish territories. These are the lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squahomish people where I'm chatting to you from today um, and it is not a cold day. It's actually been quite um, eerily warm for winter time. 
That's so nice to hear though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and could you give yourself, uh, like introduce yourself in the way you want to, to the audience and what you do or where they can also find you? Sure. Um, you can find me on, I mostly hang out on Twitter these days and I'm under uh, my name at Ahershawalia. I've been a community organizer, uh, for about two decades, um, including in no one is illegal, which is a migrant justice group. We're not very active at all in Vancouver, unfortunately anymore, but that's really where I cut my political teeth for many years. Um, I also worked and organized in the downtown east side of of Vancouver uh, with the Women's Memorial March Committee and the downtown east side Women's Center, working with uh, mostly indigenous uh, trans and cis women in the neighborhood who are impacted by gendered violence, poverty, homelessness, child apprehension, just all forms of gendered colonial violence. Now in my day job, uh, I work at the BC Civil Liberties Association, um, and I'm also an author, including Undoing Border Imperialism. Thank you so kindly for your words on that. Uh, and a new book coming up called Border and Rule, um, which releases in a few weeks. Speaking of border imperialism, I wanted to ask you what brought you into thinking about borders um, specifically and just the violence of borders. Uh, and and then you have a line in your book where you say border imperialism can be understood as creating and reproducing global mass displacements and the conditions necessary for the legalized precarity of migrants, which are inscribed by the racialized and gendered violence of empire, as well as capitalist segregation and differential segment of labor. So I wanted oh to ask God. you. <laughs> well, I, I, well, how did I write so many useless you words? Wrote, but, you, <laughs> but you wrote things that resonated. And and right now I, I want to ask about how what brought you to thinking about borders is the big one first question and then then during covid what has changed in how you think about borders Mm, thank you for that yeah i think uh what led me to thinking about borders you know really i'll say it wasn't my own thinking in that kind of individualist sense it really comes from um you know a mix of personal experience um you know particularly for others who may be coming from the region of Punjab, we know the impacts of partition, but really, you know, the kind of colonial imposition of borders on, on so many communities and peoples around the world, uh, the imposition of and the impact of borders here on indigenous peoples too. So, you know, some of those personal experiences um, in thinking through about just really how new borders are, right? Um, and I think that's really important in working against borders is to realize that actually it's just a few generations ago that our communities even really contended with what these meant. And then of course, just through the practice of community organizing and working alongside and mobilizing and supporting people facing detention and deportation that I just really constantly was challenging and being challenged in trying to reject the ideas of borders as somehow natural or inherent to how we can and should live. And Specifically around border imperialism, what I was intending to do was to not only, um, you know, interrogate borders, but also within the migrant justice movement to really push back against the narrative of and the idea and organizing around borders as being just like something we do within the nation state, right? Like calling on the Canadian government to stop our deportation or detention, which is, of course, practically necessary. That's just that's the reality in the terrain of struggle. 
but to also make sure that we are always linking it to forces of imperialism, right? Like migrants and refugees and undocumented people don't just come to be. Mm-hmm. So we talk about migrants and refugees and fighting detention and deportation, but we never talk about how people become displaced. What are the global forces? I shouldn't say we never, but rarely do we do that. And so for me, it was important to really make those global links around imperialism, around capitalism, around trade agreements, around drone warfare, around sweatshop labor, around all of the global asymmetries uh, that create migration and not only focusing on the ways in which migration is constricted, right? But to also look at how people even come to be displaced. And, you know, now we're in this quote unquote migration crisis, what, you know, mainstream and liberals call a migration crisis to create a panic. But, you know, the fact that millions and millions and millions of people are on the move, including climate refugees as the largest growing kind of group of displaced people, we really need to be thinking about migrant justice in this broader scope of asymmetrical forces of of power. So that's that was um, part of my thinking around borders, too, is to um, interrogate borders and also to look at the ways in which not only do borders constrict migrants, you know, like expelling people, deporting people, detaining people, creating the category of illegals. Uh, but there's also this global dimension that we need to be thinking about that creates migration in the first place. Exactly. And I think it's interesting, too, how media kind of doesn't intentionally um, sometimes doesn't like compel people to think why, why, why did this happen? Or like, why, what kind of Canadian intervention may have like assisted in leading to creating people who need to leave home. But uh, also yesterday, actually within the last two days, there have been a bunch of articles coming out about how Canada has started deporting thousands of people, Mm -hmm. although the pandemic is raging and it's, it's kind of, disturbing sometimes to see that like this gets swept under the rug, but also that people aren't thinking about this. But I think um, the question I would have for you is about how kind of insidious it is, but also like why don't more people think about how complicated this all is during the pandemic, but also, yeah, the, the deportations that are occurring right now, but also the working conditions of migrant people right now. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe just quickly returning to that question um, and then expanding on it in in your second question, you know, what's really changed in COVID, I think, unfortunately, has been two things. Um, I mean, generally, I'll say it's, you know, the escalation of border imperialism, but the two kind of stark things that stand out to me is that, uh, you know, because COVID has been associated with the movements of people (laughs) and we see, you know, dozens and dozens, you know, last count over 50 Oregon, 50 countries had completely shut down their borders to asylum seekers and refugees. The Canada U.S. border is still closed. And to your point about how we don't really talk about um, those impacts, you know, one that we don't talk about is how that the Canada U.S. border is closed. And here I'm not talking about tourists who, you know, still find a way to come in. Whistler, uh, which is close to where I live, is a ski resort where so many kind of white Americans are still vacationing in the winter months or, you know, we're in December. I'm talking about the border being closed to people whose movement is essential. You know, we talk about essential workers. We talk about essential movement. There is arguably no more essential movement than people fleeing for their lives. Yet the border is closed to them in Canada, in the U.S. and all around the world. So I think like, you know, like many other crises, the pandemic has kind of ushered in the state of emergency 
and has ushered in and allowed the state to securitize itself when it comes to the border. So it becomes another excuse to fortify the border um, instead of, you know, letting people still come go through the two week quarantine. You know, there's there's nothing inherent. There's nothing about closing the border particularly to asylum seekers and refugees that makes us more safe. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing that stands out. Um, and the other is that the hypocrisy of it, right? Because while we're being told that the border has to be shut down to refugees because COVID migrant workers who pick our food are being brought in, yeah. right? So for the border is open to them because, you know, Canadian businesses and the Canadian state needs to continue to extract and exploit their labor and to maintain the food supply chain. And as you mentioned, you know, deaths of farm workers are mounting, um, especially in the fields and farms of Ontario. And, you know, this is, uh, this is horrific, right? They are, they're contained, again, you know, the border's open for them, even though the border's close to refugees because their labor needs to be exploited. And then when they get here, they have no access to sick leave, continuing to work in congregated spaces, continuing to be, to live in, congregate spaces and labor camps with no social distancing within, you know, inadequate hygiene, just everything about it. And to me, it's not a coincidence that some of the largest outbreaks that we've seen in Canada are in, you know, care homes, which are facing an increasingly privatized model, Mm -hmm. including the death of a young Syrian teenager just this week. Yeah. Who came as a Syrian refugee and who, who, uh, contracted and died of COVID. So the working conditions in care homes, in meat factories and meat processing plants, you know, where overwhelmingly immigrant and refugee workers work um, and where there's been major labor strikes over the years in Alberta, in prisons and detention centers of, you know, conditions of forced incarceration and migrant worker camps, right? Like those really, the epicenters of COVID are the epicenters of social struggle. And so there, that's a very clear overlap um, when we see, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, carceral regimes and sites of sites of intensified capitalism and sites of intensified state violence, those are it. Um, and so, you know, COVID has really kind of brought those fault lines to the fore, um, and especially in the ways in which they overlap with the ra- with racial capitalism and migration. Thank you. and. Um... I like it's to me what I've been seeing and I have a little abolition reading group is kind of the necro politics of like who we let live and who we let die is mm-hmm. very apparent right now. And um, actually, there were more deportations in 2020 than the year before. But Canada continues to be viewed as like kind of um, in in like mainstream media as like a success because mm-hmm. we had like $2,000 checks for some, not all, and many are being asked to pay them back, which I like hope my audience is American and Canadian. And like, I, and I even see like American politicians who are social Democrats or whatnot doing the whole Canada to 2000 a month, but there are people being asked to pay it back. There were the essential workers are not people who benefited from largely did not all benefit from that ability to stay home. And and that's all over right now. So I, I guess uh, what, what are ways to resist and fight back or counter storytell and counter narrate? That's what I'm always thinking about. Like, how do we counter narrate this like Canada that gets projected into the world as being better than our, our American neighbors? Yeah. And it's like such a, 
fucking low bar, right? Yeah, like, it's a horrible I mean, like, bar. It's like on it's the floor. Not, like, untrue, but it's also like you know, is that really the starting point? Yeah, it 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 makes me so angry. Um, and uh, for about for a year after Undoing Border Imperialism came out, I was um, frequently in the United States, um, meeting with and connecting with and speaking with. Um, student groups and uh, migrant justice organizations and community groups as part of the book tour. But yeah, it, would, <laughs> it was always so frustrating because I'd always get the like, but at least it's better um, where you are. And I'm like, that's not true. Um, and there's many ways in which that's not true, right? And I think the way that we counter narrate, I um, mean, I'm really interested in, and I take this up a little bit in border and rule as, as a result of my frustrations with the, with the US, with the kind of US Canada narrative is actually pinpointing some of the models of, of state violence that have originated in Canada. Mm. Um, and I think that's important, right? Like we can point to, you know, of course, ongoing theft of indigenous lands, ongoing anti-Black violence, you know, point to deportations, as you mentioned. But I also think there's a, a necessary piece of that is like, what are the global models that Canada has perfected? You know, and here I think about, for example, the temporary foreign worker program. Yes. Right. Yes. That is in in the global arena, um, Canada has perfected what's called managed migration, right? So the reason that there are not a lot of massive raids in Canada, I mean, there are, but it's kind of comparing apples and oranges when you think about that, about the United States, because in the United States, people become undocumented. But in Canada, the temporary migrant worker program, the temporary foreign worker program is the kind of carrot and stick approach, right? Of like, don't become undocumented because then we'll bring you back next year. So we don't have massive communities of undocumented people. I mean, we do, but, you know, to the degree to the United States does is largely because we've perfected this model of like, when we don't need you, we'll kick you out and then we'll bring you back. And in the global scale, um, this is actually the Canadian model is called the Rolls Royce. Mm-hmm. I didn't know <laughs> Including that. by the United States, right? So the United States is like looking to become more Canadian. So I think there's a mistake when we're like, oh, Canada's becoming like more violent like the U.S. or, you know, we're getting more white supremacists. It's like, no, no, there are certain things that we actually export. Right. There are models where we export violence and the temporary foreign worker program is right up there. That's one of them. The other is the responsibility to protect doctrine. Um, And, you know, this connects to, uh, you know, the conversation around imperialism and the responsibility to protect doctrine is essentially humanitarian imperialism. Right. And so that is creating the model um, of not only military occupation, like boots on the ground, uh, full, you know, kind of full frontal warfare, but it's essentially the guise of humanitarian imperialism, right? Responsibility to protect. It's a savior doctrine. Mm-hmm. And this has been championed by Canada, for example, in its imperialist interventions in Haiti, in uh, the Canadian peacekeepers uh, who were in Somalia in the 1990s, uh, in Libya, right? So this is squarely a Canadian model that is being championed at, at the level of the UN. Um, or if we look at, you know, the Indian Act, right? Canada's, I mean, it's still on, it's still on the books, but, uh, you know, the, the Indian Act and the creation of reserves were really, again, pioneered in Canada later, uh, exported um, in South Africa by the apartheid South African regime with Bantustans and then further transported by Zionist is, you know, and the model of Israeli apartheid mm-hmm. um, with settlements. And so there's these very clear ways in which Canada has actually been at the forefront of exporting models of violence. And the constant comparison with the U.S. really misses the mark 
not only in being again untrue and because violence is a staple of Canada, but because it also then means that these kinds of um, there's an obfuscation and an erasure of the actually very dominant role that Canada plays, right? It's not just like US light. <laughs> it's, it's actually got its its own ideas and its own strategies that it's it's modeling when it comes to state violence. And so I think it's so important that we think about these kinds of things and and locate them squarely in that kind of global, in the global sphere. And I appreciate that because sometimes I find, so I, um, I moved to Canada, uh, in high school and, um, from Florida. Um, and sometimes I find it jarring how insidious, uh, things are here. Like the, the violence is more insidious to me. Like there's more maybe manners, quote unquote, like I call it like manners or something, but like, it's, it's just (laughs) as violent. Um, the stuff I see sometimes, um, at a drop in I worked at, I'm like, this is just like Florida. Like, I, I don't see a difference right now. I don't see a difference in only opening a heating center when it hits negative 20, John Tory. Yeah. Like negative 15 is not enough. Like that's what was said yesterday night. And I'm like, negative 15 is like, that's egregious. Nobody can sleep at negative. People shouldn't even be sleeping outside. Yeah. But that's a, that's an aside. But um, you mentioned um, how Canada exports. And I think that's like a key here, how Canada can export these models. And I think about that a lot too, sometimes in um, I'm thinking about right now vaccine rollout, and I'd love to hear if you have any commentary on there was this couple in Canada that um, the bakers who flew out um, to a very small indigenous community to get vaccines. And then you mentioned um, Israeli settlements and their vaccine rollout has been particularly settler specific. And I can see in Canada, as we start our vaccine rollouts, what's going to happen I'm like worried about what's going to happen, but I do think that um, it's going to be maybe like New York where Washington Heights that has a huge Dominican population. There's white people driving in to get those vaccines. So um, how do you think borders and imperialism, but also like settlers benefiting more will maybe, what what do you think we'll witness with the vaccine rollout? Even migrants, um, they're doing vaccines for all right now is a campaign that's been started and kicked off. Yeah. And it's precisely, um, you know, as you said, especially, I mean, I think the thing that I'm really um, struck by with the vaccine, there's so many layers of it, but if I were to zoom out and think about the global scale, you know, the fact that there is massive vaccine apartheid, right? There's like a hashtag and campaigns to end vaccine apartheid around the world, you know, because of a number of overlapping things, you know, one is World Trade Organization regulations and patent regulations, Um, that continues to, as it did during the HIV crisis, right, continue to make it harder for countries in the global south to make generic drugs and to, you know, basically diminish the ability of people in countries in the global south to ensure adequate health care for their people. And, you know, a lot of times there's a stereotype that the reason that global health um, and that the, the health conditions of people in the global south um, is because of, you know, poverty and impoverishment and all the like, you know, save the child type stereotypes, um, TV ads. And while, of course, you know, impoverishment is real, um, I'm not in any way minimizing that. And that is, you know, again, related to a, a legacy of, of colonization and enslavement. But also there is the very current day contemporary active attempts by pharmaceutical companies and countries in the global north to maintain a stronghold over medicines, right? Like Mm -hmm. there is medical apartheid. Um, And, you know, again, that was really abundantly clear during, uh, you know, during the 90s, during the HIV crisis, which continues, uh, but really is going to be and is amplified right now with COVID, right? So we see countries 
uh, being blocked from developing their own medicines. We have Pfizer patenting its vaccine, right? And so there's massive vaccine apartheid around the global South. And, you know, for me, that's really one of the major fault lines around um, who benefits. And that includes most of us, that includes most of us in the global North, right? Um, And there, I've just heard so many people, particularly migrant communities, um, who just feel this mixed sense of blessing with the vaccine rolling out in Canada, because they just, you know, they're getting the vaccine, but they have family members in their home countries who don't know if and when they'll ever get the vaccine, right? So there's always that sense of, you know, that sense of guilt and unfairness when you, um, when you, when you have to go through that experience. And then of course there is the issue about that. It doesn't, you know, not everyone in, in the countries that we're in will be able to access the vaccine. As you mentioned, you know, Migrant Rights Network has a campaign right now around vaccines for all to ensure that people without, um, without full immigration status and who are, who may or may not have their health cards um, can access vaccines, that they're not left out of this. And this is especially important, of course, because um, those are communities that are um, most vulnerable to COVID, again, because of the work that they're doing, the work, the work conditions that they're under and in, um, you know, like, um, like people working in the farms or working in construction or working in congregate settings. And then absolutely indigenous communities and indigenous nations across this country have been raising the alarm about the fact that they need to make sure that they are going to be able to access the COVID vaccine uh, because communities who are uh, in rural areas who have been already forced into impoverishment because of colonization, who don't have the infrastructure or healthcare or hospitals or doctors or nurses or running water, (laughs) um, you know, can't take care of their communities, not because of anything, you know, anything that they're doing. It's because of um, the forced impoverishment of colonization. Um, And so they have certainly been raising the alarm about health equity um, and ensuring access um, as a first right to indigenous nations and indigenous communities. So absolutely, I think the ways in which the vaccine rollout is happening globally and locally also brings these, you know, these fault lines to the fore about who has access, who doesn't. Um, and, you know, as you were talking about in terms of necropolitics, right? Like who has the right to life? Who has the right mm-hmm. uh, to live through this very apocalyptic pandemic? Yeah. And um, I haven't looked recently because I I just can't sometimes, but from last I saw it, the the deaths are disproportionately, it's pretty obvious who is dying now based on beyond like the age demographics, just like the racialized, uh, the racialization breakdown was pretty obvious. Um, and in Toronto, um, black communities were disproportionately catching COVID. And then you like looked at also socioeconomic status in which neighborhoods had higher COVID rates and it's places where people's living conditions aren't great, but also the bus routes are not, um, they're not running as many buses as maybe another neighborhood or like as many subways. And it's where essential workers live, which is no coincidence. Yeah. And um, so so the the comparisons of America that we've been seeing um, a few weeks ago, there was an attempted insurrection or whatnot. And then um, we see here the NDP put forward a motion in the House of Commons regarding the proliferation of white supremacist and hate groups and the designation of the Proud Boys as a terrorist entity. And um, on my timeline and in my worlds, I saw yourself and a few others that I deeply respect um, 
call it out in myself as a young Muslim who like grew up in post 9-11 in the States. Like, I just know that it's not good. Like expanding the definition of terrorism is never good. And, and I would love to hear you talk a bit more about why and like, and, and what I also saw, I believe it was your timeline and it happened to me too, where there's people who maybe have not been impacted, um, but are quote unquote progressive or like left who think it's still a good idea because the proud boys are bad and they're white, but it, it it's it's not and we can talk a bit more about why it's not <laughs> yeah sure um thank you for that question and i know it's a i know it's a thorny one and you know i guess i, I want to start by kind of acknowledging that right like that it's a frightening time for many people there's a frightening escalation of violence what happened in the us on january 6th has really kind of you know understandably uh, alarmed people but i really you know i i think that it um that it doesn't make sense for a few reasons. And exactly as you pointed out, a lot of that has to do with understanding the political context of the post 9-11 climate. You know, frankly, if someone wants to call a Proud Boys terrorist organization, like go for it, right? <laughs> like, I would, yeah. you know, that's, that's, but that's different than deploying the state's legal apparatus um, and expanding um, the security state, right? Like it's one, for me, it's not just a semantic debate about what you want to call them, call them whatever you want. I mean, I tend to think that it's appropriate to call them white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Um, and to me, that really goes to the core of the issue, right? Like why is, um, an or why is calling organizations, white supremacist and neo-Nazis not frightening enough <laughs> that we have to, call yeah. them right? Like what is more violent than white supremacy? right? Like white supremacy is already a terroristic ideology. Like it's, it's inherently a terroristic ideology. So part of me is like, do people not really understand the severity of the violence of white supremacy that you, you need to even find other language, but that's perhaps a semantic debate. Um, but I think probably a few things that I think are important in, in why we need to be really careful about the anti-terror designation, the legal designation and the listed entities designation in Canada um, is a few things. You know, one is that um, the entire legal and judicial and political infrastructure around terrorism and counterterrorism and national security, especially in the post 9-11 climate, is completely rooted in racism. Like, mm, yeah. it's not, you know, like, it's not that it just happens to impact racialized people and we can balance the scales somehow. Its entire design is rooted in racism to impact, you know, indigenous, black, Muslim, Arab, South Asian, Sikh, left communities. And one of the ways that is most obvious, um, I, I guess I'll say there's two ways in which it's obvious. One is the use of secret evidence. And we saw that especially um, in the use of security certificates in the post 9-11 climate, right? Adil Shakrawi, uh, Jabala, uh, Hassan Almarai, you yeah. know, all of the men who were on security certificates, it, everything was just by association, right? And secret evidence that they never got to see. And then, of course, the dragnet of surveillance that Muslim communities were subjected to, right? Entrapment, infiltration, detention, deportation, uh, criminal admissibility, security admissibility, um, informants, snitches, you know, like just the, the environment of racism and Islamophobia that Muslim communities were subjected to, that is baked into the national security infrastructure. And then, you know, in addition to the kind of, you know, secrecy and that dragnet that allowed um, the state to just completely surveil people 
um, you know, including Muslim students associations, mosques, like just that that massive program of surveillance and targeting. Uh, the second part is that the national security state is inseparable from deportation and detention. Yes. One of the main things that happens um, with a kind of security designation, whether it's the listed entity or security certificates or security admissibility hearings, um, is that, you know, it's basically to expedite detention and deportation, right? And in the post 9-11 climate, we know tens of thousands of people were rounded up, not just in the United States, but also in Canada and deported, even though many of them were actually permanent residents, right? So, you know, that begs the question, all right, so you've listed white supremacist organizations as terrorist organizations, where are you going to deport them to, <laughs> right? Like, what's actually, it's, it, it renders that meaningless, largely, because so much of the anti-terror infrastructure is surveillance and also deportation detention. And that latter one, I would emphasize personally, just because so much of my work has been working with people who have been impacted by um, security admissibility hearings and the, the particular nexus of deportation um, and anti-terror legislation. And also, you know, working with a lot of people who were um, impacted by deportation because of their affiliations with um, Sikh organizations, um, with Palestinian organizations, the, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, um, FMLN. These are all liberation movements in the global South that are on Canada's terrorist list. So what does it mean when people who are uh, refugees who come seeking refuge in Canada because they've been targeted by the state for being revolutionaries and leftists are then deemed a security threat, right? So there's this, um, this targeting of, of leftist communities as well. The other thing that I think it does is that it really gives us this false sense of temporary security by saying, uh, you know, organizations like the Proud Boys are terrorist organizations, they're extremists, they're an anomaly, rather than actually focusing our energies on how are we going to dismantle white supremacy, which seeps into every part of our lives. This is not just about, you know, a quote unquote fringe group. This is not a marginal group. This is about state and structural um, violence. And we see that, right? We see that um, white supremacist organizations like the Proud Boys and other white supremacists, they're in every part of society. They're in the military, <laughs> they're in law enforcement, they're in policing. And, you know, today in the United States, the story has come out that the leader of the Proud Boys in the U.S. was actually an informant for law enforcement agencies. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> right? not a surprise, and, yeah. Yeah, it's not surprising. And then it's like, okay, doesn't that just render your terrorist designation completely moot? <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> these organizations are, you know, we're not just rhetorically saying white supremacy is baked into, into the Canadian and U.S. state. Like it is, these are very clear connections. And I think the, the last thing to be concerned about it's just that, you know, it'll expand the national security state, right? Like, mm. even if somehow in the best case scenario, you manage to dismantle every white supremacist organization, which I'm not convinced because they will just reform in another, you know, unless you deal with white supremacy, they will reform under a different name. Um, but even in an ideal world, <laughs> if that happens, I am not at all convinced. In fact, I'm incredibly worried that that will just put more money into the national security state to continue to target racialized communities, right? That just gives CSIS more money. It gives cops more money. It gives CVE programs more money uh, to continue their program of surveillance. And for me, the parallel that I drew in a piece that I wrote um, was that to me, it's actually very similar to the expansion of the carceral state 
you know, in the eighties, there was this hope that, you know, yes, prisons are bad, but if we can make it work for survivors, then that'll be a good thing, right? Like we know policing is bad. We know prisons are bad, but let's just like turn their attention towards a good cause. Let's make them take on gendered violence, domestic violence, partner violence, et cetera. And we know, we know it never worked. We know it never worked. We know that in, you know, if you, that the incidence of survivors who end up getting incarcerated is higher. We know that carceral warfare continues and continues to, to continues to target the communities it was intended to always target. So I think we can't be myopic and think that somehow this will turn out differently. Yeah. <laughs> like we have so much proof that whenever we rely on fundamentally regressive and racist um, carceral regimes, they cannot be, they can't just suddenly pivot to a, a better cause. Um, it will backfire. Um, so those those are my concerns. But, you know, again, I say I say that knowing that um, this motion felt meaningful for a lot of people. And I understand why it feels meaningful, because it feels like, OK, suddenly something is being done. And I understand that instinct and I um, don't want to in any way minimize or dismiss that. Um, but I think truly for something meaningful to be done, there's no shortcut. We have to dismantle white supremacy. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I, I tried not to be dismissive of how it's meaningful, but it was a little bit um, aggravating to then have, I would say, like people who maybe share similar, uh, maybe like electoral politics. Uh, if I vote, I vote on DP. But then having having them explain to me something that I've lived with and through, but also like read extensively and have like helped people who have um, gone through certain things. And it's just, it, it just beyond the fact that it strengthens national security and like the surveillance, like the whole apparatus of that. Um, I guess my, my question for you too would be, how do we take care of ourselves and each other in ways that do not necessitate state intervention or strengthen it? Because people who argued, no, this is good. This is a good sign. We're like, well, we need to, I care about people who are impacted by white supremacy. I care about people who um, have faced things from being scared of the Proud Boys, rightfully so, or been scared of white supremacists. So how, how do we like take care of ourselves and each other in ways that don't need the state? Yeah. The biggest question of all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I do want to say, I totally hear you on the, on the frustration. Um, you know, just trying to be, I was trying to be gracious. No, you were, you were so gracious. A, I'm, I'm like tired. On other people. No, and that's totally real too, right? Um, that's totally real. And I guess I, I should say partly I'm, I'm speaking to the very specific scenario um, of uh, specifically Muslim and Sikh um, organizers who felt that this was, you know, the best option um, that I've been in conversation with. So, I mean, maybe my graciousness is specific. <laughs> yeah, and that's fair too. But um, yeah, the um, the question of, yeah, how do we, t- you know, I'm increasingly just so convinced that it's something that um, a Native youth movement comrade years ago uh, had said to me, which is that we've forgotten how to be human and live with each other. And, you know, it's like so simple and so profound, but it's increasingly seeping into me, maybe partly because mm. I'm now a parent and I constantly, there's nothing like romantic about being a parent, but, you know, you're just suddenly like responsible for other people in a particular way. But I think a lot about uh, just that idea of how ingrained these systems are in our everyday life, in terms of turning to punishment, in terms of competition, in terms of, you know, 
kind of, I got to make it or break it kind of thing, the social climbing, all of those ways. And none of us is immune, right? And so partly, um, and maybe this follows on the the, the idea of graciousness, um, is just being a little gentler with each other around the fact that like, we're not born figuring this out. Like it's Mm -hmm. impossible. Yeah. It's not innate. It's not, it's not exactly. (laughs) And it's, you know, and as much as it might've been innate when we were like three or four, it's beaten out of us quite early or taken out of us. And so just to recognize that that is in itself a learning, you know, um, I think a lot of times we think about learning as like, you know, got to learn my theory, got to learn my politics, got to learn what's happening in the world. But we forget the like the actual, the actual practice of intimacy also has to be learned. And so, you know, how do we, that's not really an answer for how we do it, because I think it's contextual and it depends on relations and it's iterative, we learn it. But I guess I would emphasize that um, we do, we should be thinking about it, thinking about it as a skill in the same way that we think about honing other skills um, and to give it the kind of care and practice um, that it deserves. And so I think that's the way in which we figure it out, right? Because the fallback to the state is constant. And, you know, I work, uh, well, now I don't, but for years I worked at a crisis center um, for, you know, 15 years where violence is, um, you know, not about people, but because of the conditions of, of the downtown East side as a, really a place of urban warfare neoliberal urban warfare. Um, and so it was not uncommon where, um, you know, people would pull knives, um, where people would be, uh, in fistfights and, you know, folks were like elders in that community just taught me so much about de-escalation. Right. So now when folks are like, Whoa, you've got like good de-escalation skills. I make it a point, like, it's not about being self-deprecating or humble, but I make it to be a point to be like, no, I learned that, right? Like mm-hmm. I had to learn that it's not something that is just me. <laughs> yeah. Like I taught and I was in, I had the privilege of being in a community and I had the privilege of learning from elders about like, how do you safely get a knife out of someone's hands when they're in crisis and make sure you and no one else is hurt? How do you like, you know, how do you talk? What are like the, the actual physical postures your body should be taking? Um, those kinds of details. And so I make a point to say that because um, I had the privilege of, of learning that and being taught that. Um, And I think we all need to be, um, we all need to be, we all need to be doing that and and thinking about learning those things. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I, I also think about like how to be with people a lot because um, I don't know, sometimes I, it's interesting the disconnect some people might have from like a outwards politics or being able to tweet certain things, but then just not being able to be with people. And that's something to learn. So I really appreciate that. And I want to just uh, wrap up by talking about your newest book that's coming out. So this podcast actually, it's it's coming out right before your book. We'll release this and your book will be out. So I'd want to hear more about um, Border and Rule and and what you, what you talk about, what you're willing to share with the audience about it. Sure. Um, Oh my gosh. I still have to, I have to like, <laughs> um, still have to condense, uh, what the book is about. To be honest, I could probably ramble for far too long and it would be very uninteresting. Um, but I guess what I would say is that border and rule really just kind of continues, um, in, in my thinking and practice around borders, but compared to say undoing border imperialism, which you mentioned so kindly, 
it's less of a border undoing border imperialism. The majority of that book really was rooted in movement practice with, you know, roundtables with other organizers and just the kind, you know, campaign organizing and things like that. Uh, this book is definitely much more of a, a, a denser um, thinking uh, around borders transnationally. And so I've uh, really just been honing in and spending a lot of time studying, to be honest, about border formations in different places um, in order to really unearth kind of transnational trends. And this maybe is the very specific location of being in Canada and being very frustrated <laughs> at the dynamic <laughs> we were talking about earlier, where it's like the U.S. is the worst. Um, and so I look at the U.S., but I also look at Canada. I look at Australia. I look at Europe. I look at Palestine is, you know, Palestine, um, but the Israeli state. I look at India. I look at the Philippines, I look at Brazil, just looking at a lot of jurisdictions um, to look at some of the uh, transnational trends around border controls, around de detention, deportation, um, around uh, temporary labor programs, around gendered violence, around statelessness, um, and the rise of racist nationalism. And so what I'm hoping the book does is really just offer people a way to enter into no border politics and to really think about borders as inherently violent um, by not fixating on like, oh, borders are bad in this country mm -hmm. or not fixating on, um, oh, this part of borders is bad, right? Like not fixating on like say concentration camps or family separation in the US, um, but to really look at the entire regime and everything it involves as inherently violent. So that's that's kind of what the, the work does. Um, and it really draws on a lineage of um, so many other brilliant writers and comrades and scholars. So I would say, you know, nothing that I'm saying is, is uh, new per se, but um, I, I hope that it just uh, brings clarity uh, by bringing in lots of threads of conversation. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. And um, I will put in the show notes uh, a link to the piece you wrote uh, this recently about the insurrections and then also a link to the book and a link to your social media. I really appreciate you joining me today. Me uh, thank you so much. <laughs> it was so great to chat. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat with you. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.
Hey Habibis, just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahel, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber-specific content. 